everything seems to be working so welcome hannah and mark um i'm genuinely excited to have you when we had lunch uh together it was just a positive vibe really really enjoyed meeting you and you know learning about your business and how you started um it's just an incredible opportunity first of all for me because i'm selfishly just going to learn a lot from you um <laughs> but i also just want to be able to highlight what you guys have done in a short period of time uh i think in less than a year you managed to grow sleep out uh, from nothing just pre-orders landing page with some product screenshots into a business that's doing over a million dollars in sales uh hundreds if not thousands of incredibly happy customers five-star reviews everywhere uh and, and amazing traction on the you know partnerships and distribution side of things and all while building a community on on different platforms uh i am thrilled to have mark Combs and hannah uh, Brandon joining me today. How are you guys? We're great. Vadim, you're too kind. Uh, we had a blast having lunch with you and Seal, and you guys are really amazing, and we're super stoked to be able to do this with you. Um, it's really been quite the journey, launching Sleep Out um, from our kind of bedrooms, <laughs> if you will, for the last <laughs> now. And yeah, we're happy to talk about every last step from the from the very beginning to now. It's been the ride of our lives. Like We're very, very happy about it. Let's start with talking a little bit about how you came up with this idea, how you decided to uh, to uh, start a business, right? Because I think both of you, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but both of you were working in the corporate sort of environment. You were uh, pursuing different careers uh, separately, and then at some point you decided to leave that all behind and transition into into a business. So first of all, how did that decision came about, and what were you doing? before launching uh, Sleep Out. Yeah, I can I can talk about the story originally. So, I mean, it really does start with uh, my insomnia worsening during the pandemic. I've always been somebody that's difficult to sleep next to, and Hannah had to deal with the brunt of that for a very long time. Um, we had used pretty much everything you could imagine to darken windows in our apartments in Toronto, and we moved often sometimes. Um, we couldn't actually install anything permanent at the time because we were renters. Uh, <laughs> And just generally, like we we hit this breaking point during the pandemic where our setup, which was a shower curtain rod, some blackout fabric, and a whole bunch of tape and garbage bags fell down on us, I think at 5 a.m. one morning. And we, we looked at each other and we we're really like, this has got to be the end of that. Aside from that, we both worked in tech startups. We met at a, a tech startup um, and then kind of went our own ways into different companies. Hannah was working at IBM. I was working at another legal tech startup. Um, and we knew that we wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but we couldn't quite come up with anything. So we uh thought about doing something like a salmon business thought about doing something like anything to do with walkers we knew that tech was really interesting but we wanted to do we were we wanted to do something physical product and then uh our own problem came crashing down uh like literally on us and we were kind of like huh maybe we should look into this and see what's out there because we bought pretty much everything to deal with this and and this has been an issue for us for a long time well there must be a better way and that's usually what founders say when they uh um, <clears throat> when they face this problem themselves, but what were you doing at IBM and the legal tech? Side? What were your roles? Was it sales? Was it marketing? Just trying to understand um, the skill set here and how that sort of translated into uh, what you do at uh, at uh, at Sleepout today. Yeah, so um, I I can start. Although, yeah. so I was um, like at the legal tech startup that we worked at together. We were both um, in in sales and business development. Um, Mark led the team and I was on the team and 
Um, from there, we sort of moved around. At IBM, um, I was in a first business development role and then consulting um, and had actually planned to stay for at least a year longer than I did because I'd moved around for a bit. And my re- like I look at my resume and I go, I'm never going to get hired. Like I, I've moved too much. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so glad and that Mark convinced yeah, me to because leave because it's like the best thing I've saying, ever done. Yeah, you have to quit. Um, yeah. I, I think... I think like the big thing, so definitely some transferable skills, a lot of just, you know, having to go figure out, have no idea how to make something happen and kind of reach out to people and figure it out. Um, the prospecting skills from sales have been invaluable in building a startup. Um, for me, though, the big thing was just like with IBM, I found it really hard to find how I was, how what I was doing was really making a difference for anybody. Um, and with Sleepout, like talking about tech, versus talking about e-com, like we have a pretty straightforward product. We make portable blackout curtains, but being able to just make a difference for somebody and that we're giving them, you know, 30 minutes or an hour of extra sleep, like that feels really huge. And um, from day one, it was really clear that that was going to be the impact we had. And so, yeah, leaving was, leaving was really scary at the time, but like such, for me, it was such a great transition and I'm really glad that you convinced me to do it. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting time. I mean, when we left, we really like some people wouldn't wouldn't leave their jobs until the, the business was actually generating quite a bit of revenue. That wasn't the case for us. Like prior to joining even tech startups, I worked in law firms. So I'm a lawyer by background, then went into tech mm-hmm. and now into e-commerce and an actual physical product. So the skills that I found really transferable were definitely working in an early stage startup. Like I was employee, I think number nine or 10 of the startup that we met at, got to take on sales and partnerships and then did that at another later stage startup afterward. Um, Definitely a lot of the lessons that you learn just being surrounded by the events of a startup, which are inherently chaotic, um, are really, really helpful in eventually running your own business. Um, understanding product market fit, understanding margin, understanding uh, good partnerships, how to actually acquire customers at a good rate. All of these things are just really critical. Um, so I think early stage uh, startup work is, is a great training for running your own company at some point. What were your parents' reaction when you told them you're not pursuing that cushy uh, job anymore? <laughs> you want to start something from scratch and not necessarily selling software or, you know, but sell curtains. I mean, what was their reaction to that? I had been through it once before and leaving law practice for tech started. Like my, my parents were already uh, pretty upset with me at that point back then. So it was kind of like, I guess, okay, you're going to go do this next thing now. Um, we're still surprised and expecting you to go back to practicing law. Uh, but, you know, we'll kind of live with it. With yours, we actually oh, got I straight up, their reaction. I straight, up, yeah. I straight up, like, lied to them for, like, two or three months. <laughs> I was like, oh, I still work at IBM. Like, I, Don't worry. I was so weird. I didn't want to tell them. Um, you, you, my, my family also, uh, like, my brothers in law school, my parents were lawyers, and I was very, this was a very different path. Um, but they were actually really supportive, and that was nice. Um they don't, you know, it's, I don't think it's something that people who aren't doing it really understand. So there've been a couple moments now where we'll like, we will be freaking out about something um, that we think is really exciting. And then we'll like go to tell them and, you know, they, they, they try to be supportive, but it's just not the same. Um, but yeah, when we, when we told them, they were, they were like, they were excited. It's great. I still have plenty of family members that don't understand. My mom still doesn't understand. She probably never will. <laughs> Great curtains. I, I mean, you know, the Dragon's Den thing and some other things that we've happened are, are definitely more validating. But 
Um, yeah. yeah. Fun. It's fun being a founder and having your parents not know what you do all day. Well, we'll we'll get to that Dragon's Den uh, uh, story in a minute, but I uh, I'm still guilty of that myself, having uh, uh, having told my my own parents before jumping into tech that I was working in in finance for maybe three years after I wasn't working there anymore, and at yeah. some point I was just like, yeah, this is better. I like it, and we kind of left it at that. But there's definitely still still a bit of tension when you you sort of have different job offers come up and you're like hey, maybe you should go do that so you know uh, but uh, I assume you both enjoy what you do and I think with you know, entrepreneurship um, it's not always about the dollars today but it's mm -hmm. about fulfillment and, and happiness and you know dollars tomorrow um, so that's that's how sometimes I see it but I'd love to uh, I'd love to uh, double click on how you both started. Really, you know, what what do you remember in the first sort of like three to six months of starting a business? Business was it a lot of research? Was it a lot of whiteboarding? Was it a lot of sort of like calling suppliers trying to figure out what the uh, you know, materials were and how they you know could be sourced? And you know, how do you go about creating that, putting together that product uh, before it goes on sale? Maybe you can take us behind the scenes of what. Uh, what that looked like for you in the first few months yeah so actually I, I thought about i thought we might get this question i thought about three things that really jumped out to me from the early days for us i think the first thing is that hannah and i are really resourceful and we're okay with reaching out to a lot of different people just to have conversations and we definitely did that a lot like with industry experts from the blackout curtain industry or freight forwarding and shipping or local prototyping or people who had done suction cup products before um, we reached out to people who are really way ahead of us. Um, I don't think you can just kind of reach out with nothing. We reached out with a story and kind of what we were hoping to do and that we were both crazy enough to leave our jobs. And that got us meetings with some pretty crazy people. Like the founders of ND both hopped on with us independently. Uh, founder of Vertible hopped on with us. One of the executives of like the last major high-end blackout curtain company in America uh, hopped on with us. And we just got to meet incredible people who showed us the way in a lot of places. Um, so that, that was us actually talking to people and talking to potential customers. The other thing that we did that I think a lot of people skip too, other than just having conversations is we did a lot of research, um, of actual hard customer data. So we went through the current portable blackout curtains that were offered that we purchased and we like read thousands of negative reviews. We built a giant Excel spreadsheet that actually lumped in every single negative review, who we thought the person was like what customer segment what specific problems they had with the curtain, and then went back and kind of talked to our contacts to figure out what we could change. Like that that was really critical and something that I think that people miss is they'll often have conversations with someone who seems like they might want to buy their product, but we got hard data from people who had actually purchased something and were unsatisfied with it and really spent a lot of time with what they were upset about and what we were going to offer in our marketing, but also in our new product that we were actually going to change about it. We also created landing pages uh, drove some Facebook traffic to those landing pages as if we had the product today. So we would do that completely blind. We'd set up a, a URL, set some Facebook traffic of those segments we thought would want our product, built the pages if we had the product now at different price points, and just literally watched through Hotjar to see if people would purchase it today, like if we had this thing, to not spend a whole bunch of time, right? This is kind of like the Eric Reese stuff building something that we weren't going to be able to sell at the right price points. And the last thing that I think that we did, the third thing, that I think is we're still going to keep doing forever is we built in public. Like we announced, Hey, we both quit our high paying jobs. And we announced that like when we didn't have anything, we had like a prototype, we didn't have any sales. We had like barely an email list. 
but that seeded our initial email list and all of those contacts that came from just building in public and talking about it on LinkedIn, uh, building a Substack, talking about it on Instagram, talking about it on TikTok. Those initial people just grew and grew and grew into our initial email list and audience and community that funded that first Kickstarter. So I, I think all three of those things were really critical for us. How much do you think of that early uh, early traction was attributed to you know you building in public, right? Because uh, there's been a lot of recent movement, and and I, I I love seeing your stories on LinkedIn, and they're not you know all about positive or all about you know success, but sometimes it's learnings and sometimes it's failures, and I really appreciate that level of vulnerability, um, and it's fairly refreshing because not a lot of people do that. And so having that sort of different take on, you know, daily, daily lives of entrepreneurs trying to launch a new brand. I, I, you know, I found myself being invested in your company by just, you know, cheering on the, from, from the sidelines, uh, emotionally, mentally, more than, you know, any commercial would ever make me invested or any promo code. Like I was willing to pay double for your, you know, still am, you know, to, to pay double for what your product is worth. Uh, as, you know, as opposed to that, you know, kind of like closest uh, uh, equivalent in a store because of you, right? So how, how much do you think, you know, for other founders potentially listening uh, and, you know, thinking about launching a brand or, or making it more personable, how much do you think it's really about the founders and, and putting yourself out there versus just having a great product and, you know, really good, you know, pay-per-click campaign and all these other things that obviously go into the success of, of building a business? Uh, but I'm just curious, maybe Hannah, you can touch base on the, uh, you know, the, 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 the founder, the personality and the story behind the brands and how you sort of went about, you know, raising that awareness through, uh, uh, through your personal story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been huge for us. Like it's, it's been absolutely huge. We, um, we started the business cause we had this problem ourselves. Right. And I think like when we talked about it, it was a big decision. Um, and Mark, I don't want to speak for you on this, but like, it, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Like talking about things that are problems that you don't really typically share with people. Um, and then to be able to have that sort of vulnerability turn into almost just strength. Um, there's been a theme in so much that we've done where, because we are just real people being real people and trying our best, we've gotten like way more understanding from customers than we thought we would. Um, for example, when we were fulfilling our Kickstarter, our shipment was like three months later than we thought it was going to be because um, we got tangled up in the global supply chain crisis that everybody was um, was in. But we like really didn't want that to happen. And we got advice from a couple of people to say, you know, like say it's stuck in the supply chain and like it'll be here soon. And we're like, okay, no, we, we're gonna be way more transparent than that. Like personally, um, I'm really nerdy and I want to know information and I want to, I, I want to understand. And so to be able to say, Hey, here's what's happened. Here's the global landscape. Here's what we're hearing from our freight forwarder. They're expecting it to get here, you know, January 20th, but based on the amount of times this has been pushed, we're thinking it's actually going to be here like February 10th. And here are all the things we've done. Um, I think I think it's refreshing, and I think, frankly, like it's way more human than this corporate polished sheen that we're so used to operating with. Um, and even like we do a lot of our marketing with influencers and with with creators on Instagram. Um, we found this incredible fit with parents. Um, 
but it feels so good to be able to have most of our marketing be done by real people as opposed to like just this black box Facebook algorithm or this black box Google ads platform. Um, and that's like us as founders, like we want to hear from people and talk to people and connect with people. Um, so, I mean, we were totally not expecting to get the level of support and the response that we did uh, when we were building in public. But in hindsight, like it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think we're in a time where like we really want to connect with each other's stories and, and sort of the vulnerable parts of what we're doing. A lot of the time, the things that feel scariest to share are those sources of strength and, and what really gets people to rally behind you. And it certainly was for us. I, I, I love that. I wish Rogers could learn a bit from you about the communicating with customers <laughs> <laughs> when things are not going well. The opposite approach, yeah. <laughs> how was the uh, how was your experience with Kickstarter? And is that something you recommend other founders when they're still trying to uh, um, you know figure out the demand for their products and uh, collect that you know those prepayments? Um, what was your experience with uh, with Kickstarter like? And and maybe you know what was it too much work to set up? Did you have to dedicate you know a whole month to it, or was it more or less kind of like set it and forget it, and then you know your social media posts were fueling? you know, the, the demands and awareness for those early donations. How does that work? Yeah, Kickstarter is definitely, it's not set it and forget it. It's like, it, we're going to do it again. Um, it's not like necessarily for everybody. I think if you're at the very beginning and you're doing a physical product and with the supply chain crisis, if you have to tie up a lot of capital before you can actually get the product to sell it and make that back, uh, it's definitely a, a powerful option for you. You do have to be careful with Kickstarter because there's so many different agencies and other people involved that can kind of come in. Kickstarter itself takes a, a fairly hefty margin and then those agencies can try to take uh, a lot sometimes. And so you really want to work with the right partner and not a whole bunch of them. Um, we're lucky to have a really great partner in Adventist Partners with ours. Um, we had a good experience in our first Kickstarter for sure. And that's what all the building in public did for us, right? Like it built that initial list. And again, going back to that, like a lot of those people on LinkedIn weren't necessarily our customer base, which would be people like first responders or um, parents with small children, but they shared and like promoted the hell out of our event. Like on the first day of our last Kickstarter, I think we had like somewhere we around trending yeah, on Twitter or something. Yeah, we had multiple, like we had a couple hundred shares uh, on LinkedIn alone that just drove a ton of traffic to the page. So it's like, they might not have been our initial buyers, but they definitely told people that were, it really, it really did boost the hell out of us. Um, so we're doing Kickstarter again. It's great for new inventions. Um, it can kind of amplify. So if there's an initial community who gets behind it and it's founder led, a lot of people will share it and the Kickstarter algorithm will plan it itself. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what that is. Um, but yeah, I, I would uh, hopefully customers calling to order more product. That's what it yeah, is. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> when the sure computer's closed. Was. Yeah, that was weird. I'm going to shut this down, but yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. It should yeah. not be a ring now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I, uh, you know, it's, um, it's hard to raise money for, um, for any business, but specifically for e-commerce business where you need to have so much upfront, um, you need to purchase inventory, you need to make packaging. I mean, hopefully, you know, a lot of that work can be done by both of you, like maybe some scrap design and, you know, creating early packaging, maybe creating a few samples of a product 
by hand, but it's not always the case. Sometimes you need equipment and sometimes you need, you know, specific, uh, you know, molds or recipes or, you know, formulas. And, and that takes some, some R&D capital. Um, I, I've, I've been spending a lot of time recently talking to founders about, you know, how they're thinking about financing, uh, uh, you know, their business. And uh, personally, I went through a, you know, a bank loan application recently, which left a lot to be desired and things like that. Uh, you know, with Kickstarter, obviously it's community capital. So, you know, they, they give money to companies that they believe in, but it's not very predictable. It's hard to sort of, you know, put a, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, any, any sort of meaningful success on it until it really becomes that successful. Then you get oversubscribed. Uh, and then on the venture capital side of things, obviously you have investors that are looking for 10x, 100x, potentially quick exit, you know, to, you know, to multiply their investment. Um, talk to me about sort of like sourcing capital in, in the early days. And is it something that you were comfortable with personally? Did you have that skill set and Rolodex to reach out to your friends, to, you know, um, some, some, some finance people, maybe get advice on uh, on, on raising bank financing, government financing, um, or did you, like most people, kind of start from scratch and went on Google and, you know, typed, you know, funding for e-commerce, enter, and then got into the rabbit hole of different options and different processes. Genuinely curious how you think about capital uh, when it comes to inventory and, 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 and starting that business, but also to grow it over time, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as it becomes more uh, self-sustainable. Yeah, I mean, you know, Vadim, that early days in a startup, it's almost impossible to get any financing for anything. I mean, I still remember being on the phone with uh, a major bank in Canada for probably over four <laughs> hours to get a $500 credit card. And it was really like we had money in our account, uh, I think we had fifty or $60,000. And it was really a fight to get an initial credit card of $500. We're like, we'll pay we it and, and put then it down. like two and a half weeks after that phone call to like process it on the back. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it's a lot of time to be able to do it. Uh, but our, we got an initial bank loan from the Futurepreneur program, which was really, really helpful for us. I think uh, companies like yours are so amazing for e-commerce startups that just cannot, like, it's so difficult, I'll just say again and again, like to actually get people to understand this business model. I think our whole financial system is stuck back in like the 1950s. You read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight and hear that like, all of his problems with Nike and that's Nike who was selling out of shoes like every single month and still couldn't get financing for it. So I think what you're doing is so, so important. We were lucky enough to connect with uh, sleep country fairly early on and they ended up giving us our seed round uh, and have been like a really, really incredible partner to us throughout. So we are in a good spot now where we're profitable um, and we, we have them to help out with, with any other financing needs at this point. Um, but Man, it, it's hard. It can be really, really difficult as an e-commerce startup to try to get the right amount of funding. And also with the supply chain crisis to time inventory through sell-through, yeah. um, it can be really, really difficult. Well, that's even like, like I mean, speaking of transparency too, like I was doing an Instagram live earlier today with our customers explaining why we're doing a Kickstarter when we've had this crazy year and it's been really good. And like, but you know, the decision you're forced to make is, is do you give away another chunk of your company for enough to make one inventory purchase? Or do you do a pre-order that you're going to deliver on in six months? Um, and we're, we're grateful to be in a position where we have the option and we, I mean, you don't know until you know, we're hopeful that it goes well. Um, but it's hard. And like what you guys are doing 
just increasing like it's it's the biggest i think it's the biggest challenge for every single founder um in the early days because everything is painstaking everything is such a hard decision um and there really isn't like an easy way to do it um you, you give away some of your company you're never going to get that back um and it's just a like yeah you guys are doing such a service yeah and the really crazy thing is you can be killing it like you can be killing it with numbers and banks still like a bank would still say well i need to see five years or three years of history yeah, or whatever like, it's I like what, what am i supposed to do it's <laughs> sold over a billion dollars like is that and yeah it's it's really an insane environment for startups no i love that level of transparency and you know wasn't wasn't looking for any you know um positive re, re uh, you know, re reaffirmation about you know paper stack but i appreciate you know the kind words and uh um it, it's definitely been a challenge like you know both my co-founder and i we both have finance backgrounds and even then you know, going to the bank and it took us a few months and, you know, you got all the financial projections, and like you said, years of returns. And at some point you're like, damn it, is this really like what I deserve after putting in so much work? And, you know, here's all the financials. Like, do you really need me to put in a certain format for, you know, you to make a decision? So I, uh, I can, I can sympathize with that. I can tell you though, like in the U S it does get a bit better with different, uh, with different banks and, and, but it's not that much different to be honest with you. Um, I think one thing that we have going for us here in Canada are all the government grants. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're interested in sort of starting a business, you can get, you know, something uh, as early as idea stage or business plan stage. There's multiple uh, incubators that will sometimes also give away a cash grant. Uh, and as you start growing, there are opportunities as well. I think uh, Futurepreneur that you mentioned, although it's structured as a loan, is still sort of that early stage development for companies and you know so um i think in canada we have it going a little bit better um i, I want to focus the you know second half of our conversation specifically on e-commerce you know i really enjoy learning from both of you and how you started this business and what was sort of like the early days looked like um but now i want to shift gears and really focus on like the day-to-day -day, the operations the grind things you've learned some of the some of the more industry specific terms and you know, I know very little about e-commerce. I'm still learning, so it would be, you know, really uh, interesting for me as well. But I'd love to, uh, I'd love to ask you about, you know, things that go into operating uh, an e-commerce brand. Let's start there. What does it take today in 2022 to have a business that sells physical products um, up and running? What goes into it? You know, is there a website? Is there a shopping cart? You know, there's obviously, um, you know, inventory that you need to make. So there's a product piece. You need to ship that product. So there is like a shipping component. Um, you know, you need to promote that product. So there is marketing and advertising. But that's oversimplification. I'd love to really understand from your point of view as experts in e-commerce, you know, can you walk us through what the day looks like uh, in, in operating a sleep out brand? And what really are those pillars that, you know, we might not even know of or, you know, not even consider when we think about launching, you know, a candle brand or a shoe brand or, you know, a beard care product. Um, we'd love to hear your own sort of like opinion on, you know, what goes into uh, operating a company like yours. Oh, man. Yeah, there's so many different things that go into an e-commerce company. I think at the base layer in terms of actually just having a good profitable business, you need really great partners. Like the 3PL partner that we have is like really, really strong. You need to be able to trust wow. them and ship them out. Um, you need to be able to trust your marketing engine and your employees that are actually working on the site. 
Um, you need to be getting good data every day about traffic coming through. If something's not working, which has happened to us a bunch, by the way, like something can go down on a particular mobile app that you have no idea about. So you're only getting purchases from iPhones, but everything Android is down. That's a lot of money eventually. Like if you don't catch that pretty quickly, um, it can really hurt you. And that's happened to us a bunch of different times in installing third-party apps. I think in the beginning, it's like that whole pillar is, do I have a working good site that I know works across mobile and desktop and is allowing people to purchase if I bring them there? And do I then have a good system that like customers expect a great product and they expect it shipped well and they expect it to arrive undamaged and arrive fast? Um, so you really like that's kind of table stakes now, and that's a hard system to get up and running in the beginning. So we we spent a lot of time just building out our website to make sure that it was uh, like not the most beautiful thing ever. We didn't spend a hundred thousand dollars on it. We just put a lot of our own effort and time into it to make sure it had everything that it needed. We put a lot of effort and time into selecting our shipping partner, and then from there we just in terms of the actual demand generation side, you have to test a whole bunch of stuff. Like what worked for us for Kickstarter last year was Facebook ads. And then those kind of died for everybody. And they weren't working for us again in, in the early like months of this year when we got stock in January. So we really had to, and we tried Pinterest ads and TikTok ads like and Google ads and all and SEO. We spent a whole bunch of time on blogging. None of that stuff really worked. What worked for us in a really strong way was affiliate marketing and influencer marketing. Um, and then doubling down on the current customer base to make them affiliates. But that that's that probably not the same for every brand, right? The point is that we tried a whole bunch of stuff. We found something that was working. We got the signals and then we just put a ton of time into that. Like once something actually started working really well for us on the demand gen side, we put like a whole program into place. We bought software for it. Uh, it's what one of our like best employees is just primarily doing now. Um, and from there, I think it's building as we go. Like we, we know that there are constantly things to improve. We're going to improve our shipping times. We're going to improve our customer service. We're going to improve our product offerings, but now we're just looking at where we can make the biggest gains on things. I don't know. There's probably plenty to add because e-commerce is so complex. Yeah. I think, I mean, like for us, because we are also like, we really put a lot into just inventing new products too. So there's a whole other R and D side to this, which is like, we've made curtains which is like textiles and our suction cups are plastic injection molded so that's two entirely like new types of manufacturing that we went and had to learn on the back end curtain rods which we're launching next week we're launching like on wednesday of next week it's crazy but that's like extrusion and cast iron and metals totally different materials totally different way of getting something ready to be made um i think like one thing that's been really important and um, Mark is very, Mark is very good at this. And, and I tend to get a little bit stuck is like, you can go so deep. You can pick one of these things, um, like not internet marketing, but like just SEO or just Facebook picture ads, like, you know, and you can go so deep on any one of those things. So we did so much testing and there's an interesting balance of like finding the right spot. It's like fast, not perfect. You got to tested enough to do a good job and put enough into trying something out to like give it a fair shot, but then also not spend, I don't know, like two entire days on packaging design. Uh, Cause you, you can, and you can go too far down something that it just takes away from everything else you're doing. Um, but when you do find those things that work, like it's, it's about figuring out where to spend your time. And then once you find the things that work, like really doubling down on them because they're going to make that the 20% is going to make 
all of the difference. No, absolutely. I, I'd love to um, maybe go very granular for a second. And, you know, you, you, you started with the building a website. I think that's the first thing you mentioned and how sometimes it works on multiple platforms and sometimes it doesn't. So <clears throat> um, would things like Shopify help you? Do you still prefer building a custom website? Um, how do you go about mobile? Maybe we can start there. Like what platforms or uh, you, you recommend founders um, that want to start a business today? For you guys, like I'd highly recommend Shopify. We've used it since the beginning, and I think it's, I think Shopify's probably got its issues, but it's it's just very strong, and it's very strong in terms of adding different apps and integrating with things really well. Um, so we've always used Shopify. We so when we started, we actually did try to like we were going to work with an agency to build out a custom site and do a bunch of stuff. At that point, though, we hadn't tested anything, and we went about halfway to a state of completion and things were taking a long time and we needed to launch. And so we ended up like using just the Shopify editor and a template to build our own version of the site. And that's what we have continued to use today. Um, our one of our team members knows a little bit of coding, a like, little bit, not, not, he's not a dev, he's not. And it was sort of self-taught to build out this site, but like using the Shopify native editor, um, recently we'll work with a couple of freelancers for like, you know, our site speed's slow. So we need to figure out how to speed that up. Um, and we'll go find somebody who can come in and do an audit and then um, boost it. But like the point is you don't need to spend a whole bunch of money to hire somebody to build a custom site. We are still on a site we've built ourselves in the Shopify editor. We're constantly testing and making changes to that. Um, but that's a situation where because we can move faster doing it ourselves, um, the platform's like good for building in. It's a little bit limited, um, but it, it, it's way better than needing to go back to like an external dev team anytime we want to make a tiny change. Um, same with like customer service software, same with uh, Instagram and a whole bunch of the other stuff that, that we're using every day. Yeah, and uh, what, what a cost saving, but I do love your uh, landing page in that moment when you, uh you know, blanket a window with a curtain and just goes dark. It's just a, such a powerful, uh, uh, is such a powerful uh, light bulb moment when you just uh, say, "Wow, this is really, uh, this can really help me." And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people as well. I'm, I'm a light sleeper. Uh, my problem is a cat. He wakes me up <laughs> before the light. So if he can invent something just to blanket the cat, uh, I'll, I'll totally buy half a dozen of those today. Um, <laughs> but I. I, I I would love to talk to you about the um, the other part of your business. So, you know, you have a website and you're listing products there. And, you know, in, in theory, that sounds great. Um, once customers come there and, you know, they shop and they, you know, they uh, presumably uh, put, put their credit card in and just, uh, you know, buy a product, then you have to ship it, right? It has to, you know, you have to, uh, you know, take that product from your warehouse or from your garage or, you know, some people start in their kitchens, then they, they upgrade to a fulfillment facilities. Um, have all kinds of, you know, conversations about that, uh, you know, early days. Um, but walk me through the, the fulfillment side of e-commerce. Um, and I think that's where a lot of conversations are currently not happening is really, what does it take, you know, after the order has been placed to actually get it to your customer's front door, uh, you know, in a way that's appealing to them. So maybe you can talk a bit about how you, learned assuming you didn't know that before starting a business how you learned about you know the 3pl and shipping and you know all these uh, all these you know services and strategies um and 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 sort of like maybe walk us through 
um, what that looks like for, for your business if somebody wanted to uh, potentially learn or, or, or borrow some of those best practices um, for their own store. But curious to learn about the distribution, uh, the, uh, the shipping and logistics and, and side, side of business. Yeah, I remember actually reaching out and talking to like probably five different founders of Kickstarter businesses just to ask them like, what the hell happens after Kickstarter? Like, I know that we're going to get these sales and we're, we're pretty, we've got a strong bank of customers, but like, yeah, how do we, we do, do this? And, and how do we ship it internationally? Like we're going to have orders from all over the world in Asia and Europe. How are we going to get it to them? So there's quite a few phone calls, a lot of different connections made for us. I think we have a funny story about how we learned the actual <laughs> like real method of, of 3PL, which was that. When our product finally got here, we went to the, the, the Sleep Country warehouse ourselves with a small team and shipped out almost 4,000 sleep out curtains in the course of three days. I think three full days where we pretty much didn't sleep. 4,000 4, uh, curtains is, is more it, than it sounds like. Yeah, so it's about, yeah, just over 2,000 orders. <laughs> we packed, you know, one, one, order, one order, five orders, 10 orders. Okay, it's been an hour. There's 1,900 orders left. You know, it's just like, okay, we're, we're never going to get through this. So we learned a lot about just what we needed to look for in an actual shipping partner. We, we learned like what our inventory looks like when we sell, you know, a thousand curtains or something like that, like what that actually looks like on the ground, all the understanding about how to package that, how to buy packages for it, how to ship it properly, understanding that packages will be lost in the mail. Um, you'll need to replace them. People expect and customers' expectations. They expect tracking information. They expect to know where their package is and to be able to get updates from a good customer service team. Uh, they expect a replacement if something goes wrong, and you need to be able to have all that stuff. So, uh, in terms of actually fulfilling it, it means finding a really, really strong partner, um, and that takes like a lot of time. And I, I don't really think there's much of a shortcut for that. You need to be able to go in there, bet what they're doing. You want to hear from reference customers. You want to see what they're. They'll obviously give you rates for shipping out your product. You want to make sure that those are accurate. Uh, you want to make sure that they're using good carriers and you want to ask them about things like uh, missing picks. So that means like that they get the order wrong or their carrier misses, which means the carrier ends up losing the package and what happens in those cases, because all of that can affect your margin down the road. But really it's the customer experience that matters. Um, and so if you have a warehouse that has a bunch of issues and you're not shipping out products for two weeks, that can really hurt you as a business. Like you're really going to harm your reputation. In, um, in terms of our flow and sort of where we're at now and what we're doing. Um, so we like order goes into Shopify, Shopify, um, a lot of the three PLs will just integrate directly with Shopify. In some cases, there'll be like a middle layer that helps our system and their system talk to each other. Um, and then the warehouse gets the order you as the business want to like, when you, when you buy product, um, it'll come in packaging. And then often that packaging will be like in another box. That's a master case. So like we can, we have like six sleep out curtains in a master case that gets unpacked. And then from a separate supplier, we buy poly mailers, um, which is what we ship to our customers in based on what's in the order. The team at the warehouse will put the, like pick the products, put it in the poly mailer put a label on it and then send it to the carrier. So that's like FedEx or UPS or um, Canada Post. And then it'll get picked up. The tracking number goes back into Shopify. And then, you know, if the package gets lost or something, it's up to a customer service to be like, okay, so did this go wrong with the warehouse? Did this go wrong with the carrier? Like what is happening here? And it's the kind of thing that, you know, the first, the first couple of weeks you're doing it, it's, there's a lot of different moving pieces. And then over time, um, 
you get the sense that everybody does it a little bit differently and there isn't like one sort of right way. You want to find a system that works and feels easy and can always be improved on. Um, and then from there, you know, you always try to improve customer experience, um, just make things easier and more transparent. But to go further on the on the shipping too, like before this curtain rod is actually quite challenging, right? Like a rod, yeah. it, it can get damaged in the mail. Um, it's quite a big package, so it's unusual. Like the sleep out curtain itself is quite small and you can fit about four in one poly mailer, which is great for us. But yeah, you better believe that we like talked to a lot of different shipping providers and looked into it because that it's critical for your margin, right? Like being able to actually fulfill, it's a huge part of the e-commerce business. People have to get your product uh, and you have to factor that in into your overall price and like what your predictions are there. Um, so yeah, you, you, it's something that you really do need to know and you need to talk to a lot of people before even setting your end price. When it comes to marketing and acquiring customers and really getting the word out, you know, I... Obviously, you're doing a lot of building in public, and so that's organic awareness. But you know, for people that that are you know listening, tuning in, and they have a hundred thousand dollar a year business, and they want to double, triple, quadruple that, um, how should they go about that? Is that just increasing the ad budget, and that's really a silver bullet these days for growing sales? Is there more or less um, a a a, a, a a, a group approach or like a, a like a bundle approach where you you know also ramp up email and social media and you know hopefully uh you know reviews catch up and word of mouth catches up walk me through your thought process when it comes to advertising and if you have you know hundred dollars where where are you allocating that hundred dollars today potentially versus where that hundred dollars would have gone uh uh six months ago yeah, for sure. I think when it comes to marketing, there really is, especially as a startup, you should be looking for something with super high returns. Like we're talking between five and 10 X and that sounds insane to most businesses, but if you're super early, there's gotta be some type of channel for you that really outsizes the others. I think where people get stuck is they hear from founders and what was successful for them or Facebook ads is everything they hear from agencies or Google ads is everything. And then they're just like, okay, well, you just need to pour more money in here or you need to shoot more creative to make those ads just perform a little bit better and go from like a two row ads to a 2.3. I think it is a flywheel, but you need to find, you need to spend a lot of time making mistakes and looking at areas that aren't doing well and spending time there and then finding whatever that could be for you. And I've heard from a ton of e-com businesses that it's completely different for every business. It could be email marketing for you. It could be affiliate marketing for you. It could be Facebook ads still, um, or, or it could be TikTok gifting and seeding there, right? Where we would spend it now is definitely in terms of micro influencers or people who are right within our niche who could tell other people about the product that just works for us like magic. And we found that out and then we just built an entire program around it. I think the key thing for us um, has been like, making sure that that's a part of something bigger. So we have email campaigns specifically around that. We have a special email campaign that goes out to our affiliates. Our affiliates are motivated to bring in customers in a specific way. And then we have deals with them um, where we can use some of their best creative in some of our retargeting ads for Facebook, right? So we've created this flywheel of stuff that works really well for us, but it took four or five months to get there and to get something that was really, really strong. The good thing is during those months where we weren't doing well, um, the payoff has really come now. Like this is really where you can put everything into kind of one single um, system that's working. And, and that's really, really critical. 
And if you did have $100 today, and I know it's a, it's a very tactical and very point in time kind of question that changes all the time, um, but what would you do you know, with $100 today from return on, on, on advertising perspective? You know, would that be more or less just uh, spending a few extra hours sending out emails, so doing organic social media, or do you think it's better spent putting it in, 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 in advertising and uh, uh, driving traffic to your landing page? How, how do you think about allocating your budget? Our budget, I mean, so our budget now is mostly allocated to influencers in, like in, in that whole space. But I think what I'm saying is like you um, you won't know initially, right? Like you, you're you going to have to take that $100 and put $20 into Pinterest or put $20 into Google or put $20 into Facebook. Uh, okay. And it's going to take a while to actually figure that like what, what that is for you. The organic side, the great thing about that is like you can actually build up your own audience and they'll tell you kind of what you should be doing. Um, so that's a big part of it too. Like as one example, when we were, um, we were, when we were trying to figure out what our thing was, we talked to the founders of another brand who also grew with influencer marketing and they were apparel. And so they would just gift a whole bunch of product, and, um, their folks would post like very like aesthetically pleasing photos, wearing the stuff. And that was how they exploded. And then they had a celebrity post a photo in one of their pieces and it blew up. For us, that doesn't work. Like we have to be, we have to do videos where we're demoing the product because we have, well, it's just what works. But it took a bunch of time and a bunch of testing to figure that out. Um, for other folks, like maybe YouTube reviews, for other folks, maybe TikTok memes that incorporate the product in a creative way. Like it really depends on, resonates with people. and the only way to figure that out is to go test. Yeah, I will say that it's pretty clear that gifting or being able to seed your product to other people who can talk about it is probably one of the cheapest and most effective ways, unless you have a really expensive product like a refrigerator or like you know a car or something like that that you can't gift it or even a mattress uh, it could be tougher. But if you have a smaller product, um, just seeding it out, it's, it's just the cost of your product and shipping. Uh, it can be a really, really effective way uh, to generate marketing. It just, it. It's not going to be instant, right? Like you're not going to see the return on that post right away. It's the return of 10 or a hundred people posting about it in a month is going to bring you a lot going three months later. Well, um, I, um, I know we have about 10 minutes left, so I want to really, uh, uh be able to touch base on a few interesting things. You, you've mentioned sleep out quite a few times. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh sleep country quite a few times. Uh, in the context of building sleep out and i'm uh, would love to know what that relationship looks like and uh, what have you learned um uh, you know, uh throughout the process of uh, uh nurturing that relationship navigating that that potential deal and what that deal would look like for you uh, as much as you're comfortable sharing obviously with uh, with the public but would love to uh would love to learn um about that partnership yeah, I can talk about it a bit and, and, and you should talk about some of the other sides to it too. Luckily for us, it's very public. So we did a press release with them. Uh, it was $500,000 for 25% of the business. Um, and so they're a, a minority investor, but a very strong partner of ours. Like they have helped us with everything. When we had that supply chain crisis, they really dug in for us and got us a better freight forwarder that they used. And we would have met like that freight forwarder never would have talked to us uh, because we're not shipping like millions and millions of, of tons of gear over to Canada every year. Um, so they've been massively, massively helpful to us everywhere. Um, I think what we're looking towards, especially since most of our sales are in the U S is we're probably going to do something in retail with them in Canada, which we're really excited about. 
Um, but just the introductions in their own Rolodex of partners around the world, like Sleep Country really is a partnership business, um, been really, really strong for us. I think the, the future for us is doing actual business with them in their stores, which we're excited about, but also uh, looking more abroad as well. What would you add? Yeah, no, I I think I think um, they've been Sleepwalker has been an amazing partner, and in terms of like reaching out to learn about stuff you don't know from people who do, um, when it comes to marketing, there's so much that's going to be unique to every single business, and figuring it out yourself is is kind of the the figuring out what works for you is going to be the best approach. Um, but they've been like being able to go to somebody on product development and say, Hey, we are working on, you know, this new type of product and you've made this before. So when we're talking to our manufacturer, like what questions do we need to ask or what are things that we wouldn't, here's how we're thinking of approaching this. What would you add that we just like, wouldn't know to ask the first time we were doing this. Um, and that type of insight is incredible. Same thing when we imported our first shipment. Um, you know, it's, it's, the questions are like, how do you do this? Um, but them being willing to jump in and give us that expertise, um, along with some other founders and and teams that we reached out to, um, it's been it's been super valuable. And then, you know, being able to have that support while we go and figure out how to talk about the product and and market the business and grow. Um, yeah, no, we 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 feel really lucky to be in that situation. I, you know, now that they own 25% of your business, I assume at some point they'll they'll want to uh, potentially acquire the rest. I mean, I don't know how these deals work, so you know, don't don't hold me uh, 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 too much to it. But you know, if they ever came to you with an acquisition offer, you know, down the line, um, how comfortable, how you know, open are you to you know let, letting go what you built seemingly from scratch? Was was it always the uh, the plan that this business will at some point become at that level where a bigger company get you know acquires it and you know you get to make uh, obviously you know life changing amounts of money but also see it become something bigger through distribution and scale and you know everything like marketing that they have to offer um, or is it more that you want to keep working on this and and be the majority owners and and uh, you know grow this for as long as it will take. Uh, and see how how big it can become in, as an independent entity. How do you think about that? Uh, and is that something that you both agree on? This is very interesting to me. Or or do both of you have sort of you know different thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that and like really we did that deal in November of last year. When we looked at that, and we had other investors interested. We could have potentially given up more and had a minority interest ourselves. It was really important to us to keep control of sleep out. Um, because we want to do innovative things like the new curtain rod. Uh, we went through a really hard time even getting it built. Like nobody wants to build something new, right? Like when you go to big manufacturers, they just want to sell you something that already exists in huge quantities. That's how they make them. Like building something new is a ton of time. It's a lot of effort. Um, you actually have to build new machinery that you alluded to before too, right? Like new molds, new extrusions. Um, and so we like it's really important for us to stay innovative and to be able to do things quickly. And so I think acquisition for us it isn't top of mind at, at this point. Like we feel like we have so much in us. Like we're thinking of new products constantly that we want to change. And I actually think there's just a ton in the sleep space that has been really dominated by some of the larger players. Like again, looking at curtain rods, it's on our minds because we're launching it next week. But 
Uh, curtain rods haven't been changed in the past 130 years. It's the same design <laughs> that was invented like in the 1800s or so, um, but nobody has thought to change it. I think there's there's so much more we can do around sleep and actually do something, but I think it's important for us to re remain in control of the business to do that, uh, remain quick, remain innovative. Um, and so uh, like, I, I just think we have a lot more in us before we consider um, Sally, maybe that's me being very protective of our baby at this point, but like, I, I just feel that uh, we have a lot to do with sleep out. I think, I think too, part of like, part of the ability to be innovative and be creative and, and like really build something special is just focusing on building the thing. Um, it, it, we've had, we, we've had periods where we've been less focused on like, let's try this stuff and, and more focused on, you know, relations with, with, well, like, frankly, relations with sleep country and, and making sure that we were, but you spend so much time going back and forth that you take time away from just figuring out what works and doing the same things that got you to the place you were in the first place. Um, and so we, we've, we've been having the most fun when we're just focused on building and we, we want to just keep going. You've been on uh, Dragon's Den, if I uh, if I remember correctly, and 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 I think you know it's one of those experiences that you remember for a long time. You're standing on that stage, the lights go on, you see you know, all these uh, investors sitting in front of you, and then they really ask tough questions. Um, and obviously, you you try to uh, you know get that deal done without giving away too much of your company, and you know hopefully maximizing a, a long term value add as well from from that particular person. Um, I'm not sure if the uh, if the deal is public yet, or if you can speak to some of the you know some of the experience that you've had while there. But I'd love to ask you that question: uh, How was Dragon's Den, and and uh, you know what can you tell us? Yeah, I would say so. It is unfortunately very confidential because CBC really does go above and beyond to make sure that you sign every NDA possible, which we respect. So. Uh, we we can't uh, we can't talk about the details of what happened in the den, other than to say that it was one of the definitely for me one of the most magical moments I've had. Like I grew up watching that show. Uh, I never thought that I would be on it, going to law school and then working in tech. Like I was like, okay, this is just not something that's going to happen. Um, preparing for it was intense. Like we talked to a lot of other Dragon's Den companies. I, they do ask tough questions. They go right into the financials, like pretty deep. Actually, the show ends up getting cut into seven minutes, but you're there for a full hour getting asked pretty much everything about the business. Like it's, it's pretty real. Um, so we prepared for it pretty hard for two weeks. We had friends come over and grill us. Um, we watched episodes of Dragon's Den and would pause when they asked questions as if they were asking us those questions. And we prepared a bunch of financials just to get ready for it. So I think we had a good time, but it was a it was a big lift. Like it was a lot of prep. We definitely celebrated after it, it was, was over. It was, it was it was great. I'm not exaggerating. It was the most prepared I've ever been for anything in my life. Um, but it but it was but it, it was good. Off, it, was a, yeah. it didn't feel real being in there, and um, it's a super cool experience to get to do. We're just we're really excited for it to come out. Like I, yeah. I cannot wait for the season to air. And I can only assume you, you're you're happy about the outcome, uh, <laughs> by your by your expression on your face. So maybe maybe some. Yeah, <laughs> we're happy about our preparation, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> but ju just about to wrap up, and really, um, maybe we can take a minute each. I mean, you know, Mark and Hannah uh, with with you separately, but you know, maybe Hannah, we'll we'll, we'll start with you and. You know, really, what? How do you, uh, you know, looking back uh, on that day when you decided to go in business with Mark and start this business and really leave comfortable job behind? 
how do you think you've changed as a person? And, uh, you know, what are some of the things, some of the biggest things that maybe you learned and, 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 you know, other things that you wish you, you knew at that time when, when you just decided to, uh, uh, to do this, would, would love to get your take on, uh, on the last year and, and obviously everything that, uh, you know, preceded that as well. Yeah, I have grown so much, um, personally, professionally, like just, you have to, right? Like you're, I, I think the biggest things for me were I struggled a lot with confidence and imposter syndrome and um, just like getting really overwhelmed by not knowing how to do things. Um, like I, I, I grew up feeling very much like I had to, I was comparing myself to my peers all the time. And I, I had to be, I had to just know how to do stuff. And um, that was really hard because there were a lot of situations where I didn't know how to do stuff. And then you start entrepreneurship and like, you don't know anything. Um, you're learning new things every single day. And so for me, like the, the biggest learnings have just been to trust in my ability to figure stuff out. Um, which looks like a lot of reaching out to other people and, and going as far as I can. And then saying, how do, how do we, how do we get, take the next step? Like, where do we go from here? Um, I think there's a lot of like time balance stuff that I've learned too on how to choose the right things to focus on. Um, especially if you're a person who can get really like kind of, kind of deep into a certain topic or a little myopic, um, which I definitely, I definitely can. Um, like I block my time. I set my priorities before I look at email at the beginning of the day. And that's really important because otherwise I'll just get pulled off and I'll spend all day doing stuff that feels like it matters. But at the end of the day, like it, it really isn't as important as if I did those two like big product development and supply chain emails, like it's sort of, um, it's sort of like that. And, uh, and the other thing is like, you spend a lot of time hearing people say that you're crazy and you have to just choose not to listen to them, um, which is really empowering after you do it for a little while because they're like, you know, trying to be supportive or just blatantly telling, asking you what you're going to do after your business fails. And you're like, and then they turn around and say, Oh, I always believed in you. And you're kind of like, well, no, no, you didn't, but that's okay. Um, and it's not about that because we're here and we see this and, and, later, um, later, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Um, but yeah, the, the personal growth is absolutely massive. Uh, a lot of things I saw as weaknesses have, have turned into strengths. And, um, I, I know I, I have confidence that I'll be able to figure stuff out, which is not how I was before I started. I love that Mark over to you. And really, you know, when it comes to the last year and, and, and more, was there anything that you've uncovered about yourself? um throughout that time that i don't think you know you, you you didn't think you knew or you didn't think was in you or you know some 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 strength that you just wasn't aware of or um you know how do you reflect yourself uh on yourself as a founder as a leader as a as a as, a, as an entrepreneur um you know now that you're deep into the trenches and quite frankly launching the uh the rods i mean there's no turning back now now but not that you're launching it you know, a, a curtain rod. So what, what, what are your reflections on, on, on your own time being a founder? No, yeah, we, we definitely wouldn't want to turn back. And I said, it's a great question. I sense, Vadim, you've got a lot of learning from this too. I think entrepreneurship specifically, probably more than almost anything else gives you a kind of reflective mirror on yourself. Um, it, it's just so full of everything. I mean, anything from being desperate in the beginning to just reaching out to a 
like a person you knew in elementary school to share your Kickstarter to um, getting a big deal and then appearing on TV. Like you really go through the almost entire range of human emotions from some of the greatest highs to, oh my God, we're never going to ship out all of these products. And so I think you really learn a lot about yourself um, through the process. What I've learned is um, I can be happy doing really, really simplistic things. And I don't actually need the complex life that I thought that I did. And that came through a lot of a lot of different hardship and a lot of different successes. I definitely learned how to time box and to do things that are valuable because as you know, it's impossible to do everything as a founder, like everything is broken. Uh, you're constantly having to choose and prioritize the right things. I think one of the, the best things that I learned is, is kind of the beauty in other people. So many people in the beginning when we had nothing, and that's the, those are the times that we'll always remember, helped us um, literally just because we had a dream and we were open about it and we told people about it. Uh, Joe Mimran, who used to be a dragon on Dragon's Den, um, just a mega successful entrepreneur in Canada, gave us his time because we said, you know, we are auditioning for Dragon's Den. This is our dream to go on here and to do this business. And he sat with us and heard our pitch. It was like, and we, like, it wasn't like we even had a sale at that point. I think really discovering that if you um, believe in something, you're willing to put it out there, other people will help you, I think changes your life. I think the other big shift for us is, the perception that, oh, you can't do this, or this price point is impossible, or X or Y is impossible. You start to realize that all of these things, how retail is done, or certain products that are out there. Um, I used to, I, I think everybody does, used to attribute so much like, oh, these big businesses, if that could have been changed, they would have done it already. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, they haven't spent any time on that. They're spending all their time just managing their employees and looking at finances. Like, um, actually, everything can be changed. So, yeah, it's been a, a totally transformative experience. I feel blessed to come to work every day with great people to work with and also with just incredible partners that that help support Sleep Out. It's really been a, a giant gift. Mark Hanna, I so, so much appreciate you uh, spending an entire hour and, and, and going over uh, because of my poor time management skills, of course. Um, but so, so much appreciate everything you've learned. And I genuinely think it will help so many people. I know it helped, definitely helped me I just learned so much in one hour that uh, 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 that I probably didn't learn in, in, in years. Um, definitely encourage everybody to follow you on Sleep Out on all kinds of social channels. Uh, and hopefully I'll see you back on the show at some point in the future talking about all the incredible deals and uh, you know what the future holds for you guys. But in the meantime, appreciate you and uh, nothing but continued success to both of you. Thank you, Vadim. It was a pleasure. Thank you,